Welcome to the Remove the Guesswork podcast. Hello, welcome to the Remove the Guesswork podcast. I'm Leanne Spencer. Um, I've got a cracking show for you this week. Um, my guest is Pete Williams. Uh, I first met Pete a few years ago when he spoke at a conference that I was at in London. And I was really taken with his attitudes, his philosophies, his ideas, and we loosely kept in touch. And when Pete joined the world of social media recently, uh, I saw my opportunity to get him on the show. Uh, Pete Williams has a degree in exercise physiology. He has a master in medicine and is a fellow of the Royal Society of Medicine as well. He's a national and international speaker, and he runs his clinic from central London. And in this episode, we talk about all sorts of things. It's a little bit of a longer episode than usual, but it was, we were just running and running, and I thought, I've, I've got to let this guy talk. We talk about functional medicine, what it is and what it means in practice. Uh, we discuss the effects of chronic stress on the body, uh, a concept called allostatic load, which Pete explains, the signs and symptoms of chronic stress and burnout, and what you can do about it. And we also swap ideas about what corporate leaders can do to change the culture. Uh, so it's a really great show. Um, if you've got questions for either Pete or myself, send me an email to leanne, L-E-A-N-N-E, at bodyshotperformance.com, and either Pete or I'll get back to you. So enjoy the show. If you've found this useful, please share it with other people. I think the true measure of uh, the quality of a podcast or the episodes in it is, is how many times it gets shared, how many times somebody sends it to someone and says, look, you really need to listen to this. And we've had feedback from people who who aren't regular listeners, but somebody sent them an episode and said, listen to this, and they've loved it, and it's really changed things for them. So that means a lot to us. So please share, uh, sign up to the, subscribe to the show on, on Apple Podcasts, and of course, leave us a review as well. That means a great deal to us. So that's it from me. Enjoy the show. This is Pete Williams. Hi, Pete. Welcome to the show. Hi. Afternoon. Yeah. You all right? Yeah, yeah, very well, thanks. Thanks for joining us. Um, I want to start with, with kind of the whole thing of what you do, functional medicine. Uh, and I wonder if you could explain for me what functional medicine is, and for our listeners, of course, uh, and what that means in practice. Okay, um, quite a difficult one to uh, to really put some an explanation on onto it. But but really, functional medicine is a um, it's a medical system, if you like, that I suppose they're in a very simplified way ask the question not what is going on but why is it going on right. and so so when we do that we sort of really change the narrative of, of how we look at people medically because it's a bit let me give you an example say someone comes in with regards to and they're diagnosed i.e i'm type 2 diabetic that's well, what that's what it is what i do from a functional medicine perspective is understand why is it why have they been brought to that place and therefore this all sort of the whole functional medicine model is a model of chronic disease healthcare that really answers those questions because they there would be many many reasons of why an individual has been brought to a diagnosis and in many ways it is a it is a, a dysfunction over time of many of the body systems generally through a combination of the genes, but importantly, how the genes have either played out or not based on the lifestyle that they lead. Mm. And so, so as you say, so, so functional medicine grew up from a, a group, it's over 50 years old now, and it's becoming the 
model of healthcare from a point of view of a conventional medicine model when we're looking at chronic diseases. Mm. Because most of the chronic diseases that are epidemic, um, obesity, type 2 diabetes, a lot of the neurocognitive diseases, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, dementia, are all lifestyle-driven um, conditions. And so when you're looking at them, you really got to answer that question, not what is it that I've got, but why is it that I've got it? Mm. And then you can trace back over time all the systems of why someone gets to that point. It might be that their diet has been particularly poor, they don't sleep well enough. And again, this sounds like our typical executives, doesn't it? Mm. They're highly stressed and they don't take a lot of exercise. And maybe their genetics are not great from a point of view of, of how those genes play out when you provide those genes with a poor lifestyle. Mm. And so that for me is the, is the fundamental difference. They, and I think functional medicine also is one that I suppose combines both the best of evidence-based conventional medicine and if you like evidence-based um, integrative and alternative medicine. Mm. So that's how I would look. I, I just look at it as best medicine. Really. Mm. And how did so, you get into that? Um, well, good point. I started off, as you know, as a, as a, I got a couple of background degrees in exercise medicine and medical science. And um, I suppose it really was over time, it's the recognition that when you're dealing with someone, you're dealing with someone who, who, who maybe has a diagnosis or something, you know, you have to really understand um, the context of someone's life and the context of someone on a much greater scale so that you can understand how the life that they lead may be implicating and impacting on those diseases. And I was very lucky to just, it was one of those chance meetings that, you know, one of my good mates on a boozy Thursday night said, you should go and listen to this guy. Um, he comes into London once a year. I mean, this was God, this was 96, Leon. Mm. And um, I went to listen to this guy called Dr. Jeffrey Bland, and he did the most eloquent description of um, what we were learning about cardiovascular disease and how what we were learning and what we were doing in the past is completely is completely wrong. And I, and I think that's one of the key points about science and medicine is that it it just evolves so quickly that what we know now is probably going to be wrong in ten years again. Mm. So and that was it for me. It, it was like holy cow. I mean, this was just such the most. And I still think the goosebumps on my arm. Thought, wow. I've just never heard anything explained in that way, so scientifically um, relevant and just beautifully brought across that that was it for me. Oh, and that was Jeff my journey. Jeffrey Bland. Jeffrey Bland, yeah, who was part of the, started off at the Institute for Functional Medicine, and that's what led me in from 97 onwards to, to continue on the continued medical education program, which um, they uh, eventually started to run a medical certification um, and so I trained up on that and certified and passed the exams. That was 2013 was, was, was when I became certified through them. And, and of course, I suppose the other key thing is that I always tell the story about when I speak in front of people um, that I'm genuinely, you, you know, I'm genuinely honored to be able to speak in front of them. And that is because when I started speaking in functional medicine many years ago, 
because I was blown away with it, I thought everyone would be blown away with it, hmm. and I would be able to advertise, and I'd get a full house. And of course, the very first time I did it, nobody turned up. So, uh, so yeah. But of course, it's the same thing. Is that well, it's becoming more and more recognised now, and lots of large medical institutions um, and you know um, the NHS and etc. Really starting to suggest that ah, you know what, this is actually this model of how we look after chronic and lifestyle mediated diseases and disorders really does start to make sense. Um, and it brings us away from that sort of allopathic model of, uh, you know, and I'm not suggesting this is, is this the way that it works, but, a, you know, a pill for an ill. I mean, it's mm. moving us away from that. Yeah. Um, and understanding that, you know, in many ways, um, that may not be the best treatment model, um, yeah. and so and so yeah. So it's it's gaining real a real grip now, which is is encouraging, um, and yeah. So it, it's nice. Mm. I mean, that's exactly where my kind of philosophy sits. I mean, the intersection of conventional medicine and modern thinking around lifestyle, as you say, and its implications on disease, and and some of the other things that aren't part of conventional medicine, like meditation. The effect of breathing on the body and moving us into parasympathetic dominance and all this kind of stuff i'm really interested in i guess that's all part of functional medicine right yeah but look i think the key to that is that if you had discussed meditation with me 15 years ago i mean you know regardless of whether i've come down this route i've still my you know my my academic background is quite a conventional medical background but i think good science is good science hmm. and so when you look at the science of meditation and mindfulness it is really outstanding. And, you know, I, one of my key things I always talk to executives about, I know, and I know that's something, again, that is important for you, is the question of what are the biggest bangs we're going to get for our book? Mm -hmm. And when we look at what meditation has the ability to do, it's definitely up there as one of the number one treatments that you could ever do. It's, yeah. it's immense. And the research backs it up. The research also backs up how how meditation can actually influence the the human genome that's how that's how good it is with regards to being able to make an impact so again i think what we're seeing is that there comes a point and i think this is why a lot of lifestyle um lifestyle therapies that we are doing you can't ignore good solid hard science mm. about them um and so the people who tend to ignore that i think are the people who are blinkered yeah. And so, you know, this is it's just good science. And so when I said to you, what do I practice? Well, in many ways, it's just good science, whether that is very conventional medicine or integrated medicine or functional medicine. Yeah. If it's good science, it's good science. Yeah, I completely and agree. So that, and that's the way I look at it. And, and you know, as you say, meditation is a is a really good example of just what science is starting to show us with regards to meditation. Um, but again, I think that's asked the questions about, you know, we as humans have unfortunately engineered a world and a lifestyle that um, we essentially are, are always on. Yep. And I, what we need is methods to be able to turn us off occasionally just to allow us to have that break. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I think from that perspective, and particularly down on the stress perspective, that's why I think these mindfulness treatments these meditative treatments are so so important because people become stress fixated in that the nervous system and their brain is so wired into being on all the time it's very very difficult 
for them to get off. Mm. And so it's quite a it, it's a, it's quite a challenge for them to try and do something that allows their nervous system to calm down. So in many ways, what you'll see of executives or many people is that they fail because they don't accept that it's a, it's a learned skill. It needs to be learned over a long period of time before your brain gets it. Yeah. And so if anyone's listening to this and they've done that and said it didn't work, well, I would go back and say, well, you've got to give these things time to be able to work. And if you're thinking you're going to pick up meditation in a couple of weeks, it's just not going to happen. No. So I think that's where expectation levels are really important. So for me, anyone who is going down mindfulness, I'll say, look, we need to give this six months minimum yeah. period time yeah. before you can sort of really decide whether this is for you or it's not working for you. Yeah. So I do 10 minutes a day and uh, using Headspace, and I put a little mm -hmm. device called the Human Charger into my ears, um, which shines UV free blue and rich white light. So it's a bit like getting a, a dose of natural light. It's not quite the yep. same, but... So I do that in the morning because it's usually dark or darkish or I'm indoors. And I do yeah. 10 minutes on Headspace. And it told me the other day, the app tells you how many other people are meditating at that time and how many minutes you've done. And I've just hit a thousand minutes. So I've not been doing it for that long. But I'm just starting to kind of really, really practice closing the mind off for a good portion of time. Fewer intrusive thoughts, more, yeah. more benefits. Um, and, that, and that's been a thousand minutes. So it's a great illustration of, of your point. So that's a hundred meditation sessions of ten minutes, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I, you know, I think I, I think this leads us into I think technology is both incredibly important and, and really bad for us at the same time. Yeah. I just want to quote two of those applications you're talking about. I think Headspace is, and there's a lot out there. I like Headspace a lot. I think it's a great application. And I think the Human Charger, I think, is an incredibly interesting piece of technology because. I suppose one of the problems we've talked about with humans and what we've done with our life and our existence is that we have seemed to have engineered some of the basics of human lifestyle out of out of our lives. Mm. You know, we get up when it's dark and we come home when it's dark. And, you know, this leads into all the, the talk and the theories and the science around what, what we would call, I suppose, in the medical fraternity, circadian rhythm biology. Yeah. And, and the point about that is that, you know, re the reality of how we set up our circadian rhythms, our biological rhythms each day, is that we should get up and we should feel the sun every day. Mm. And when the sun in the morning has a particular light spectrum, a blue light spectrum, and what, when that blue light hits the back of our eyes, it sends a signal to our brain to really tell us about where we are in the day, how we set up our hormones, and let's get charged for the day. And, and that is what that piece of technology is essentially replacing. Mm. So it is, it, is, it is trying to get your circadian rhythms into some kind of natural rhythm um, that is more appropriate to, to our biology. What I would also say about that, I really talk to regards to any patients, whether it's, whether it's the execs that I work with or it's the chronic disease patients, is that if you can get sunshine hitting your eyes in the morning, that sunshine, as you say, is, is of, a, of a certain light spectrum, predominantly blue light. And that's really, really important because that blue light is the light that allows to hit the back of our, back of our eyes and talk to the brain and set us up to say, it's daytime, let's get on with the day and let's get charged for the day. Hmm. Of course, it's the same blue light intensity that we're looking on our phones and our computers at night yep. that confuse our brain to say, oh, okay, well, 
it's dark outside and I'm getting all this blue light intensity. So should I be awake or should I not be awake? And this is where technology is really bad for us because there's a classical way of where that, you know, your iPhone or your iPad that has, you know, a lot of blue light spectrums in there are really confusing our brain and our hormones and our circadian rhythms about, well, is it night or is it day? So there is a, there is a sort of sleep hygiene strategy that I have with, with everyone. And that is, is that you know, we have to be able, and again, even from that, what we talked about before, about how we, how we bring people down from the day, there's got to be a cutoff time from a point of view of work and technology yeah, and definitely. thinking away from work. Otherwise, your brain still stays in that highly, um, what we would call sympathetically activated state. And many people just don't sleep very well because of that. Mm. You know, so if you think that, you know, if you're asleep, if you're sleeping poorly, but yet you still choose to be on your emails 20 minutes before you go to bed, you're really sort of asking for it in many ways. And so, you know, if there's anything you can take away from today is that you've got to be able to produce some decent cutoff times between work and life away from work. Yeah, I completely and agree. So, I mean, sleep, that we've touched on sleep. Um, yeah. I want to talk more about the types of people you work with, particularly on the kind of busy professionals, executives. Sleep, yeah. I'm sure, is an issue for a great many of those. But what are the other common problems you see them presenting with? Again, I think it comes down to... Uh, so if we talk about who I work with, it will be anything from heads of international corporations to um, large corporates to um, individuals really tend to be CEOs, MDs, that sort, that sort of stuff. I mean, that is on the, that is on the sort of business executive side. Mm. Um, again, I think we all, every one of them turns up and understands probably the basics of what is wrong with their lifestyle. The key factor, as I always say to them, is that the biggest negative factor in your health at the moment is time. Mm. Because you need time to be able to do things that we need you to do. We need you to take time to med meditate. We need you time to sleep in bed, you know, get a bit more sleep. And that is something that a lot of them don't have. Um, and so as a consequence of that, we get a lot of sort of biochemical and metabolic derangements over time. So more likely to have an accelerated um, um, push towards diseases and disorders like type 2 diabetes would be a classically classically um, being overweight and I know we, we're, we're not talking about sleep but you know I see a lot of executives where their diets are brilliant and again I can talk about that a little bit it's not so much the diet it's the impact that their stressful lifestyles have on them because one of the one of the key thing that I've seen over I'd say 20 years now is that the people we're dealing with who usually have got plenty of money you know they're in very high powered jobs and, and in many ways money's money's not an object so they have the ability to get in many ways the best food that is that is available mm. organic really good you know a lot of them will have food companies bringing it in and so when you assess the quality of it the quality is fantastic but what we see on what they so what they put in their mouth unfortunately for many of these ex executives isn't what eventually gets to the cells and that is because when they are time poor, very stressed, is that a lot of their digestive capabilities and capacities are significantly reduced. Mm. And so their ability to absorb and assimilate and metabolize the, the great 
pardon me, the grapefruit that they're getting is significantly reduced. And so that is something that I see time and time and time again. And, you know, again, for many of these people, um, if we talked about it, you know, the answers are, um, you know, if you had six months to just go away on holiday and lie on the beach and sleep and rest and have a bit of sun and nice food, you'd solve all the issues, but that's not, a, that's mm. not the practicality of modern life. Um, but the reality is for many, many executives, um, my role is to lay down to them what are the expectations levels that they think they can get within the constraints of their lifestyles. And that's really, really important because when you start setting expectation levels, particularly from an, an experience perspective, it allows them not to get too het up when they're not getting the results that they expect to get over mm. time. Yeah. And so I think that's one thing I've learned. And I can give an example of, this, of a, uh, an MD I'm working with at the moment, a, a really amazing woman. But she's had to realize that based on, and, and they've just been bought out, floated the company on the stock market, et cetera, et cetera. And what she had to realize within that time frame of her being literally 24 seven is that we're not gonna get her any better, Leanne. In fact, all we're going to be doing is slowing down the rate of decline hmm. with all the all the interventions that we've been doing with her. And again, that is because in many ways, her body, every day that she got up for the last six months, we've essentially been in a fight every single day. And so that's where, again, I think a lot of executives who, you know, um, usually type A personality types are always about results. They have to really, really understand what is the capability and the capacity of their bodies to be able to create some of the results that they want based on everything else that's happening in their lifestyles. Mm. And so, you know, that's really, really important because mm. for many, if you're slowing the rate of decline, even with all the interventions, you're doing a really good job with yeah. some. And that is because, again, they don't have the time. And most of their time is in an incredibly stressful environment. So that, that's been quite important, I think. And I think what we also that gives you, it actually gives your exec a, a sort of different mindset because a lot of them are very hard on themselves and a lot of them spend a lot of time, you know, really sort of scratching their heads about, well, why aren't I getting the results? Because I'm down the gym three or four times a week. I'm on this diet and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I'm really not getting anywhere. And so I think that's where, well, you are getting it somewhere. In fact, you're doing really, really well. Because if we weren't doing this, you'd be much, much deeper down the hole than you would be if we hadn't have done this. Mm. And so that's why, again, expectation levels are really, really important. Yeah. And that comes back, again, to the time thing. Yeah. When you have more time, you can be a little bit more relaxed. And when you have more time, you can do a little bit more things, You know, maybe get a little bit more sleep. So, and then you start to see the results evolve. So she's a classical one who gone, I get it. Yeah. And, and that's important because yeah. what you don't want to do, particularly, you know, as, as, as practitioners who give advice is we have to be realistic with that advice mm. because otherwise after a couple of months when they're not getting anywhere um, and there's no answer to why they're not getting anywhere, they're going to leave. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't feel good. From practice, no, of course it doesn't. It doesn't feel doesn't good feel for good you. For... Doesn't feel good for them. Yeah. You know, it doesn't solve anything. So for me, I would rather have that very, 
that very frank and honest conversation at, at the beginning. And I can tell you, I see lots and lots, I interview lots and lots of executives. Um, and what I do is I always give them a, three, a, a, a free consult at the beginning because what I've got to be able to do with my experience is, is, is set those expectation levels. And I'd probably say, I'd probably lose four out of every 10 uh, consultation doesn't go any further. And that's fine. And that's From their volition. Well, yes, because number one, actually the realization of what they may have to do. Mm -hmm. Also the realization of the effect, what that treatment may give them over time. You know, the guy who comes in who wants to overpay me and give me bonuses because I'm going to lose three stone off him in two months before he goes on holiday. You know, it's like, well, that's all well and good, mate, but you've got to go away and do that. I can't yeah. do that for you. So if you don't have the time, you're not going to do. And, and, and so, I, I, again, I think, I think a lot of executives, um, the human body is not a mechanical system. It's not a business. So you can't strategize it in that way because there's just too much involved with it. And, you know, it's a sort of, you know, if I take off a thousand calories, therefore I'm going to lose X. And it just doesn't work like that. And so that's why, again, you've got to be really realistic and honest with them at the beginning. And of course, the more time they have and the more they've got in the tank, the more work you can do. Yeah. The less time they've got, the more stressed they are, the less time they have, the less you can do. Yeah. But again, that is just about being realistic with expectation levels as you go forward. Yeah, agreed. I mean, you mentioned stress, brackets anxiety. I'm not exactly sure what the, the difference is in some, some contexts, but what are some of the signs of, um, of chronic stress? Do they manifest themselves as physical symptoms first? Or what, what are your observations? Yeah, I, I, again, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a big term, isn't it, stress? Yeah. Um, but I think what we're talking about here is probably define, I mean, you can define stress in many ways. You can, you can define stress by um, it being hot outside or it being cold outside. That is a sort of environmental stressor on the body. But I think, you know, that just an example, we would be looking at stress more from a point of view of feeling stress, more the sort of psychological stresses that, you know, where you, you get anxious or, you know, you're stressed out about work because there's a meeting coming up. That's more how we would look at the stress. I think stress, as you say, there's two things to, to think about when we're working with executives is that there's two sides to our nervous system. There's one that excites us and there's one that relaxes us. And fundamentally, most executives in our world probably spend 95% of their whole working careers and lives in that stressful side, that, that, that what we call a sympathetic nervous system. So the, the stress response is on, but that stress response, and this is the thing about stress, and this is why I think a lot of mindfulness and a lot of um, coaching and a lot of understanding of who you are and what you're about and how you view the outside world. And importantly, with a lot of the corporates that I'm working with, a big organization at the moment, some of the major stresses is actually understanding other people. Mm. And that's why sort of thoughts and feelings and perceptions of how we look at the outside world determines our stress response in many ways. Yeah. And so, um, you know, executives spend way, way too much time in this in this fight or flight response and so and that is because humans unfortunately have these really huge brains and those brains have got so big but they're still a bit stupid from because we still don't the stress response regardless whether it's um 
you know, a bit of road rage, regardless of whether it is just a, an email that we've misinterpreted, we still think that that is going to put us in a situation where we're after going to run for our lives or we're going to have to have a fight. Mm. That's, the, that's the main issue. And, and, and for most individuals, it's on way, way too long and mm. too often. The really interesting thing about stress is short term, it's really incredibly good for us. And that's the interesting thing because it ramps up a lot of our systems. It stimulates our immune system to be better. It, does, it burns a lot of fat. Um, but it's a system that really shouldn't be on too often. And what we've done is we've engineered a life and a society where it's on way too much. Mm. And so what we're always trying to do is we're trying to balance that off, that yin and yang relationship with modalities that, you know, you talk about two things, mindfulness, you know, or using an application, which is just actually trying to calm things down. Yeah. And so what are the consequences of that long term? Stress is a, is a, is a mechanism where it, when it becomes chronic, underpins and has a relationship in pretty much every lifestyle disease or disorder as we go forward. Um, and so a lot of the things that I'll see with executives are fatigue, burnout, um, increased risk of mood disorders. And that makes real sort of biological sense because when you're burning a system out and using all those energies to produce a fight or flight, stress hormones over time are going to make you feel miserable. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because one of the classical signs of whether someone's miserable is, you know, they're just not happy. Yeah. And so there are some yeah. fundamental questions that I'll say to executives. I said, you know, on a scale of 10, how happy would you say your life is? Um, and, you know, and that sort of builds into the wider picture, the wider picture about, you know, the sort of more philosophical questions about what the hell are you chasing here? Mm. You know, because you might be on two million pounds a year, but you're so miserable. What's the point? Yeah. You know, and, and again, I've had some executives where, as you say, eventually we laughed about it, didn't we, before we came on there. Yeah. Is that eventually got to the point where they, they gave their jobs up. Yeah. And, uh, that, and, and it's the best thing for them. Well, again, and you know what the thing about that is that once they do, all the health parameters very yeah. quickly and easily slip back into, into, um, into line. I think, you know, I think a lot of it, you know, having spent 20 years with these people, a lot of them get trapped, I think is probably mm. a good word. And um, they get trapped and they get into a situation where, you know, maybe their kids are in private school, they've got a big mortgage and they get trapped. They get trapped in that sort of, I need to keep working because I need to pay all the finances because I've got this going on. And, and, and yet they are fundamentally unhappy with their lives. Hmm. And so stress, as you say, underpins for me, again, from experience, pretty much every accelerated disease or disorder that we could, we could talk about. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, the key things is that, again, I think mood state is a really good way of looking at whether people are highly stressed i'll give you another example as well it's just something that's very simple and will 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 resonate with your audience because we live in a world and we choose to live in a world where we it we've engineered a lot of the basic lifestyle um, and factors out of it making it um, difficult for us we try to self-medicate ourselves because we don't produce enough of the basic hormones anymore so of course, most of our executives, you know, I'm one included, uh, can't really start the day without caffeine. Hmm. Of course, caffeine has a stimulating effect on the nervous system. And one of the things we see with highly stressed people over time 
is that they 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 have an, they have a reduced ability to stimulate stress hormones in the morning. So we talked about circadian rhythm biology, and one of the things that should happen is that your stress hormone, your cortisol, should really ramp up in the morning because it's a hormone that wakes you up. That's one of its roles, and it should be really high in the morning, and that's what it should do naturally, and then it should drop right off towards the evening. But of course, for most of us, because we're so stressed all the time, we actually burn out the ability to make stress hormones. And of course, when we're looking at hormones, too low is no good and too high is no good. Mm -hmm. So we end up spending years and years with high stress hormones, and then we eventually get to the point where we just can't generate a lot of stress hormones anymore. And that has significant risk factors for many diseases, particularly autoimmunity, particularly inflammatory-like conditions, because of course, cortisol as a hormone, it's a stress hormone, is very much um, an immune um, um, helper and also an anti-inflammatory hormone as well. So you start to see people with all these immune-led and inflammatory-like conditions. But again, sure sign is that yeah, one of the questions I say to him, do you feel like a different person when you've had a, your double shot of caffeine in the morning? Oh yeah, I feel totally different. I feel as though I'm ready for the day then. So that'd be one of the signs. And of course, the other one we do, of course, because we're so het up from the day, we self-medicate in the evening with alcohol. Yeah. Because alcohol is this beautiful mo molecule that does, in many ways, depending on the individual, allow us to relax down. Now, um, I'm a fan of alcohol, but really, I'm a fan of what we can do on a more sort of um, con connecting humans level. But I think when we look at the science, there was a recent um, paper that came out of British um, um, a Journal of Medicine really suggesting that alcohol really doesn't have any beneficial effects. But of course, we use it as a hook, and we're using hooks, whether it's you know usually some kind of substance, because we don't make the necessary neurotransmitters or feel-good hormones because we're making we're spending all our time making stress hormones mm. and so we try to self-medicate our way through that through the days and that's why you'll see a an increasing problem with mood disorders with depression with anxiety and that's because our systems our biological systems are just overly biased and balanced towards making stress hormones and the key there's a real key biological component to that and that is, is that on a very basic level, humans exist, to the, and, and this is how I always speak when I'm talking about hormones, the key thing that our body is designed to do every single day is to stay alive. It is yeah. number one focus. And that's why, we have, that's why we have senses. Those senses role is for, for every second of every minute of every hour of every day, we check the environment to see whether this is safe or not. And when it's not safe, we produce all those hormones that ramp us up to either fight or flight. And that is sort of the, the key to what our major role. So when we're talking about hormones, every time that happens, stress hormones always get the big piece of the pie. And when we do that, that means some of our other hormones have to, have to down-regulate to compensate. Mm -hmm. So that's why stress men will never have optimal testosterone levels. And that's why women in general are more likely to have hormonal um, and reproductive issues mm -hmm. because of the stress cycle. It's because you don't get your chunk because the chunk of energy at every one day is going to produce stress hormones. Right. Now, the number two, as you say, the number two is then, we'll, and I always say, let's stay alive first and we'll worry about reproduction. 
and your body is geared to do that every single second of every day. And this is why I said, Ken, it's all about oh, how do we, do our thoughts and feelings, perceptions about the outside world suggest we are safe or not? And that's why understanding who you are, what you're about, the you know the chat that you have with other people, you know they may say something. And I think a lot of this is that, and again, a lot of the work that I do with the behavioral guys in organizations is getting each individual to understand who they are, what they're about, and what other people, you know, how they may view other people and get them to be comfortable with that. Because once we start doing that, we allow situations where they just don't need to have a, as big a stress response as they would do normally, because they understand those social dynamics a lot better. And that has been a major impact on a lot of people. Because a lot of people get very het up with other members of staff. Yeah. And that tends to be a lot of the problem. You know, yeah. so-and-so doesn't understand what he's saying. It's like, well, is that correct? Or is that, you know, he, you're both looking at the same thing, but he views it differently to you. No one's right or no one's wrong. It's just that his view of the outside world is slightly different to yours. And therefore, you know, trying to meet in the middle and understand what their view is may um, have an influence on that stress response. So yeah. I've probably gone out for a bit of a tangent there. No, but no, no, really interesting. How that, how um, that influences and, in on an exec. And without going down the rabbit hole of, of social media, but I guess some of that hit upness about other people, they don't even necessarily need to be in front of you. It's other people in Facebook feeds and Twitter and this kind of stuff. I just wanted to jump on as well on, on what you said. Now, you introduced the term to me, allostatic load, a, a few years yeah. back. Um, and yeah. that, I believe, is a persistent wear and tear on the body due to elevated stress levels. Just tell us um, briefly a little bit about allostatic load. I'm mindful of your time, so yeah. I just so want to ask you one more quick question was, after that. Was, was coined by Professor Bruce McEwen um, about 20 years ago. And I suppose, as you say, you said it beautifully. What is the allostatic load? The allostatic load is really what is the wear and tear on the body over time through the stress response? And what I'm also going to say on that, it's not just through the stress response, it's the fact that you don't, you don't give the body an ability to recover from the stress response. So as I repeated at the beginning, what's so important is that stress short-term is actually really good for you as long as you have your body's ability to recover from it. And so the allostatic load is, is what you see with executives. Executives are a classic bunch for problems with the allostatic load. And I suppose the other key thing is, Leanne, is that stress comes from many areas. And what you've got to be able to do is get, get, get an individual to understand where their stresses and strains come from. I've never really seen an executive who, who doesn't um, get into trouble over time and that trouble almost comes from it's either their health or it's their relationships. Mm. Um, and they all become stressors. They all become allostatic loads. And I think one of the other things I see, and this is a, probably down to this um, sort of the society that we're doing. And I think the evidence really on, the, on a lot of the psychological evidence and on the sort of social genomic evidence with regards to business strategies and practices of working seems so outdated now you know this we need to be working 24 7 we've got to go 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 i think the science is repeatedly showing that this is just really pretty silly stuff to do mm. because it doesn't benefit you well, i think one of the key is it's like anything it's it takes it takes a really um a, a really sort of um uh, what's the word i'm looking for um, an executive or an organization that really has a, a really good um, 
I can't, I can't think of the term. You've really got to book the trend to be able to make these decisions because, you know, some of the things is I say to the, I'll say to our executives, an hour more sleep a night is equivalent to an eight hours more productive the next day. <laughs> so, you know, there are ways and ways where you can get your life back and you can be more productive. And so that is a way that we can think about the allostatic load. You know, because when you when you consistently don't have that ability to recover and your allostatic load gets greater and greater and greater, all these what jet tends to happen is that you end up doing more hours, but you're really not doing good productive work within those hours. Yeah. And that is because, you know, if you I mean if you just look at lack of sleep for for an example, and if you look at so here's an example of what stress hormones do. Stress hormones over time it'll be a classical that resonate with a lot of your ex executives. They Stress hormones burn out your memory centers in your brain. So, of course, one of the signs of long-term stress is that you have very poor memory recall. Hmm. Now, you also have a very poor memory recall because you're not sleeping enough. And what all the science is showing us is that lack of sleep means that your, your cognitive ability the next day is poor. You are less able to concentrate. You are a damn sight less able to be creative and so this is where we're going with a point of view, well, maybe we need to make those step backs and then we can, number one, enjoy our life a bit more, be less, have a life outside of work and actually do at least, if not more productive and beneficial and um, have an organization that's actually making more profit. I, I, um, one of the papers I always show corporations because the number one thing corporations think about is you know is the bottom line I get it it's a business it's fine I get that and there was a paper that came out two years ago from the journal of um, um, the journal of business management I think and what that paper showed is that they 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 looked at how the award-winning companies in the US that won awards for uh, their well-being programs how they performed on the US stock exchange. And what was clear about that is that they clearly out-profited any other company. Hmm. And they are convinced that is because they are trying to understand, you know, understand the employees and understand that if they make the employees better and more well, then they have a more productive company. And that's the bottom line. So when you show that, I go, before you start talking to me about the money, let me just show you how much more as a company you're potentially going to earn because you spend more time looking after your employees. Well, it's a competitive advantage as well. You're going to attract more talent. And I, I think Ariana Huffington, um, I may have the quote, I may not actually. She said something like stress reduction and mindfulness isn't just a, uh, and she didn't say nice to have, but that was the implication. It's a proven competitive advantage for any business. It, and, um, and this is what they're showing because you're absolutely right. Because what happens is when people, you know, we're always trying, a business is always trying to attract the best talent out there in every single department. Yeah. And again, what will happen is that when you have an individual where really he, he, he or she can name it, name the, the price, they're going to start looking at, well, what are the other benefits? And this is what was also very apparent in that paper is that it's, you know, it's not just because of their well-being, it's because of the whole other aspect of what that company is doing because they're attracting the right people. And, and I think one of the other things, again, about humans is that 
you know, when you look at humans, we, we mimic other humans, and that's what we do that because it's a safety aspect. It's an evolutionary aspect that keeps us safe. And again, happy, productive people attract other happy, productive people. Mm. And it snowballs. Miserable, sad, moody people attract miserable, sad, moody people. <laughs> and so that's why when we're talking about what are the fundamental changes that we need to make in organizations, maybe happiness is one of them. Yeah. Maybe actually, you know, I mean, and then these are the strategies. And, and again, this is not fluff. We talked about this right at the beginning. This has got real hard science behind it. Mm-hmm. And this is what we're talking about when we're talking about the connectedness of the organization, those social genomics about how do we connect as an organization? How does our little department connect? And it might be, you know, something as stupidly simple as, you know, at 11.15 on a Friday morning, someone sends around, you know, a funny YouTube clip that is 30 seconds long. These are the things that from tiny little seeds start to develop. Because once you start integrating these these changes, it's a snowballing effect. Yeah. You know, it's a bit like it's a bit like if the if the um, if any organization, if the top table, the board, are not bought in to change and they want to make the change themselves, it will never triple down. It'll always be a tick boxing yeah. um, thing for the organization. And again, that is one of the keys. And I'm having a long talk. I've been in for two years now talking to a massive organization about this. And the board are finally starting to get it. They appreciate that actually, you know what? We need to do this for ourselves. And then once people see that actually we're doing it at the top, it will trickle down. It's the only way you can do it. I Otherwise, think, it becomes a false message. Yeah. I think also, um, we've spoken to one of our clients about this, working to change the culture from the top, which is absolutely paramount and first and foremost, I agree. But having some sort of graduate program so the newcomers into the business are being um, guided in the way that this business wants to run now with a priority on things like meditation, mindfulness, gratitude, safe place to speak up, okay to talk about your mental health, all this stuff. So kind of a top-down approach and eventually you just you, you get there. One thing I'd like to see as well is uh, companies allowing employees the opportunity to work according to their chronotype. So if you're a morning person, great, you can do eight till four. If you're an evening person, you can do 10 to six or 11 to seven. Um, it having given people that bandwidth to work within their chronotype and see how much more productive they were then when you're sat in an eight o'clock meeting saying, well, look, you look like, you're, you know, three of you aren't even at the table. Well, that's because they're evening people and we're getting them up well outside of their chronotype. Whether it'll happen yeah. or not, I don't know. Well, look, I think I think we are. I think many organisations are starting to look at, you know, flexible times, and it's just the same thing again. Is that you know, as a, as a business, what are we trying to do? You know, fundamentally, it's trying to make profit, but it wants to do that in a way that, um, you know, has real value, real purpose. You know, what is the purpose of the business? What is the purpose of how we live every day with our employees? What sort of life do we want to lead? You know, do we have a life outside of work? And I think you know that is where you know work working life for me. Is, is you know and from well-being strategy is one that not only looks after the employee while they're in work but makes massive inroads to the health and success and well-being of the lifestyle out of out of work as well and you know I think I think giving flexibility is all about what's the point in doing a 60-hour week when you're tired and exhausted when half of that is just completely unproductive time. Mm. You know, and again, you know, it's that same thing. I think we've got to get people out of the rhythm that, oh, you know, you need to be working 14 hours a day. Well, it's like, well, 
what's the point when four six hours of that of that you know 14 hour day are just poor i mean we've all done it yeah. we all think we're working hard because we do long hours but actually how productive mm. is that you know what is it what is it that you know we've done on that that is really really productive yeah and again as you say the longer we do that and the longer we 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 influence our lifestyle we be, we become less cognitive good at work we're less creative in particular mm. i mean you, you create your creative abilities dramatically decrease when you're tired and, and overstressed we just don't do it yeah because our brain is having to cope with other things and that is the fight or flight mechanism yeah. so yeah so it's uh it's you know i do think there is a change um I think it takes a brave organization to start going down that route. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's definitely a few who are going down there. And you know, these these, these changes do not need to be um, expensive. No. You know, and I think a lot of organizations, as you say, don't realize that actually over time, and the science is showing that, you produce a company that is more profitable. Yeah. And you attract the best talent. Yeah it's like a it's almost like a win-win straight away and if you went in there i said i'm going to show you in 10 years time how you're going to be more profitable and you're not going to have any problems attracting the best talent you don't even need to go looking for it and there you go and we know that it's happened because that's the evidence of what we're seeing in the us well so looking at how companies change and companies that have been started by millennials um, and by you know a different generation of executive, you know less of the Dragon's Den style execs that I used to look up to, and I've moved away to more more heart centric entrepreneurs who aren't looking yes. to smash the hell out themselves. They're looking to you know have a career which allow or a business that allows them to go out and have a surf when the surf's good or whatever it might be. And it'd be interesting yeah. to see over the next few years how the corporate culture changes. Um, I just want to finish. I'm very mindful of time. Have you got two more minutes? Go for it. Yeah, um, we've talked a lot about the effects of chronic stress, and we've talked a bit about the corporate culture, but. For, for somebody listening in, you know, what are some of the maybe two or three things that they can do straight off the bat to help them try and reduce their stress levels, feel better, get back in control? I would say the first thing you've got to do is recognize whether you are um, under an excessive load. Yeah. Um, and there would be some sure signs on that, some very simple things. Again, number one, um, a tendency to self-medicate. Yeah. And that would be the classical, you know, can't stay off the caffeine, you know. I'd just like to say on that, I think we're all, we're all going with the evidence. If you are going to be doing that, coffee in general is good. So I think at least you're getting some healthy aspects of that. Um, but again, the sort of self-medication on the um, in, in the evening to uh, to bring yourself down. Again, if you're doing that consistently, then that is suggestive of maybe you should recognise that. Mm. I think one of the other things, Leanne, is is very fundamentally is that people just aren't, you know. They become unhappy. They're not happy anymore. They're not laughing and joking anymore. Yeah. You know, life seems to be a, a bit of a you know, um, a, 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 you know, pretty miserable. And it, you know, if that is you and that is you consistently, then you really need to think about you know, is this a problem for me? And then you need to go and get help, which is the other thing. Because what I would say on that, regardless of who you are and what you're about, everyone needs someone else to help them out yeah um and people can't do it on their own and this is the whole thing isn't it we talked about you know about it's for me it's crazy that if you're having some kind of um you know anxiety stress depressive issues that you wouldn't go and talk to someone and i say that because 
the physiological consequences of high stress over time is mood disorders. So, and that's, that's, that is a normal biological response. Mm. So it's crazy that we've, we've, we've put some myths around that about, oh, you shouldn't be that, you should be able to cope with it yourself. You shouldn't be able to, you know, and you need to go and get help and you need someone to talk to, mm. you know, again, maybe in, in the future we'll do a talk about social genomics and the connecting with humans and why that is so important because again that is something that i think will and certainly i'm, I'm speaking to again another organization to get him to understand how social connectedness at work is probably one of the most powerful interventions that you can do because humans are designed to be with humans and you know you can really change people's well-being and wellness by how you connect your small department, your larger department, how you can connect that whole organization as sort of like a, like a super family. And, you know, there is huge power in the power of us being connected to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so the, the power of being able to give someone that you understand, you know, for, for, well, I think the power to be able to have safe spaces for people to go and say, actually, you know what, I'm not all right. Yeah. The power for it to be okay to give someone a hug who's struggling. Again, there are some really profound, I presented a, a case study of a chronic disease patient that I had who her main issue was loneliness. And what we were talking about there was the power of, you know, wh- the power of physical contact when you, when you hug and put your arms around someone, as someone that you're familiar with, the power of what that can do from lowering blood pressure, from increasing feel-good hormones like and connectedness hormones like mm. oxytocin mm-hmm. are huge and you know these are the things that we need to get back to you know these are the things that are the new frontiers of of corporate wellness and corporate medicine is that you know it's a big impact it doesn't cost anything and there's real benefit from it mm. and again i think you know the way we used to look at business and listen i've got no problem with the sort of dragon's den type you know the alan sugar type businessmen do I think that is a way to run the business? It certainly wouldn't how I would run a business. Um, but even with them, they can only do that for so long, Leanne, before yeah. they fall apart. And they're not so, on their own. They've got big no, support of teams not. of husband, wife, yeah. husband, wife yeah. in the and, case of those. You know. And so I do believe that what we need to do is just try and just re, re and come back to some basics of human communication, human connectedness. And the basics of just living lifestyle, yeah. getting some sunshine, that sort of stuff. You know, the the ability to be physical, which is again another thing that we've that we've we've seen to have engineered very nicely out of our lives. Of course, the, the ability of them is 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 then is to get over these old constructs of how we should run an organisation and how we should make profit. Mm-hmm. And again, when you're so ingrained in an old dogma, it takes a really brave board to say actually we don't want to do it like that anymore we want to do it like this and what i would say as far as people going into these organizations you you know you you, i mean i had a conversation with someone at linkedin that i finally got onto this year um and that was you know in quite soon i think we're going to be having directors of wellness that will be overseeing this Mm. and be on part of the board It, it, it that for me is only a matter of time yeah well, um, we'll, have, we'll have to leave it there, but there's uh, Gary Vaynerchuk's company, VaynerMedia, came to London at the beginning of the year, and he has a chief heart officer on his right. board. And I think we'll see more of that. Uh, and he is not necessarily, well, actually, that's not, not strictly fair, but he's a very bombastic, 
brash New Yorker. He's not someone you'd immediately think would perhaps have that, but he has very high emotional intelligence. And uh, yeah. I think it takes that to appoint someone like a chief heart officer. But Pete, thank Absolutely. you so much. We've had far no more problem. of your time than I was hoping for. Um, I'm going to link to all your newly established social media links. I know yes, you're on Facebook, you your Twitter, After your LinkedIn. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so well, welcome. <laughs> I still um, don't understand it, by the way. So uh, get someone to um, do it for you. Would be my advice. Yeah, I think I think that is the answer. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. No problem. All right, All right Leanne. I'll speak to you soon. Yeah. See you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to the show. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, help us to reach more people by leaving a rating and a review on iTunes. We would really appreciate that, and it would help us to spread the good word even further. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you on the next show.